On March 25, 1584, Sir Walter Raleigh was granted a charter by Queen Elizabeth I. According to the charter, his task was to discover, search, find out, and view remote heathen and barbarous lands, and to have, hold, occupy, and enjoy them. In layman's terms, he was to explore and settle the new world. And so he did. A month later, Raleigh assembled and dispatched an expedition, led by Philip Amadis and Arthur Barlow, to explore the eastern coast of North America. While Raleigh remained in England, his expedition made the journey across the Atlantic, making their way to the outer banks of what, then, was a new land known as Virginia, but today is known as North Carolina. They sailed up and down the coast, surveying the land, charting maps, and assessing possible colony locations, until, eventually, on July 4, 1584, the men and crew arrived on the island of Roanoke, a small, roughly 18-square-mile island just outside the Outer Banks. There, the men made contact with the Secretan and Croatoan tribes, whom the men sought to establish a positive relationship with, a task that it would seem they succeeded in, as a short while later the men returned to England accompanied by a pair of Croatoan men, Manteo and Juan Chis. The two Native American men provided Sir Walter Raleigh with a wealth of information, describing the geography of the area and the politics among the tribes, information that Raleigh used to plan a second, much larger voyage back to Roanoke Island, this time to establish a permanent settlement. And so, on April 9, 1585, a new expedition left England, a fleet of seven ships led by Sir Richard Grenville. Grenville was a tenacious man, proud, ambitious, and on an eternal quest for wealth, and he intended for this mission to further this goal. The journey across the Atlantic was a difficult one, but perhaps the biggest hurdle came only miles from their destination. As soon as it had arrived at the Outer Banks, Grenville's ship, the Tiger, struck a shoal. The ship was stranded for several days and took on large amounts of water, ultimately ruining most of the food supplies. But the crew did manage to repair the damaged ship, and again, Tiger was off, on its way to what would soon be the brand new colony of Roanoke. And in early July 1585, Sir Richard Grenville made landfall. Finally, after three grueling months at sea, the colonists were able to settle and explore Roanoke, as well as the surrounding islands. But unbeknownst to them, their hardships had only just begun. The Roanoke colony was doomed to fail, and it would do so in a bewildering fashion that would capture the world's imagination for many years to come. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Simply Strange. I'm PJ, and it's been a little while. Hopefully there's still some people left out there who are listening to the show and you haven't all unsubscribed by now. And if you are here, 
thank you so much for sticking around and stopping by. I'm looking forward to this episode. This is a story that I've been toying with the idea of covering for quite a while now, and I'm excited to finally be doing it. This is the story of the Roanoke Colony. Roanoke was a beautiful island, flat and green with sandy beaches. The settlement itself was made at the northern end of the island, as most of the southern end was dominated by a large marsh that didn't make for quite the pleasant experience found at the northern end. But despite its pleasant surroundings, the Roanoke colony was met with adversity from the get-go. Following the troubles en route to Roanoke, much of their food supply was lost, and the settlers were forced to learn the new crops available to them in this foreign land. And learn quickly. Doing this meant that they needed to establish a relationship with their co-inhabitants of these new lands, the local Native American tribes. At first, relations with the Native Americans seemed to be going exceptionally well. Chief Manteo led the English colonists throughout the region, introducing them to the settlements throughout the Pamlico Sound. The English were met with a quiet courtesy and curiosity by the local tribes, and the trading was advantageous to both parties. English clothes and other wares like knives, glasses, and hats were met with enthusiasm by the Native Americans, and the English were equally excited by the fresh source of food and rations. All seemed well between the newcomers and the local tribes. But unfortunately, this peace would be short-lived. About three weeks in, the relationship between the native tribes and the colonists changed drastically in the course of a day. Among the villages visited by the English was Aquascagok, a small settlement on the mainland some 50 miles southwest of the Roanoke colony. In mid-July, a party of four vessels and 50 men, led by Captain Grenville and guided by Chief Manteo, arrived at Aquascagok. The town was a lovely sight hugging the shore and otherwise enveloped by cornfields. All along the water, fishermen stood in dugout canoes, casting their nets, methodically and gracefully hauling in the evening meals. As had also been the case at previous villages, the town's residents quietly lined the shore, eagerly waiting to greet their strange foreign visitors. The four English boats anchored just offshore, and the crew made their way to Aquascagok. The meeting was brief and cordial, as in towns before, the English were welcomed with opened arms, and again, the two parties traded wares. And then, the English departed. As they sailed away, behind them, Aquascagok was the picture of serenity, as the little town and its surrounding cornfields basked in the purple and orange glow of the setting sun. Sadly, though, this tranquility would not last. At some point during the next day, the English noticed something missing from one of their ships, a silver chalice, and their suspicions fell upon the people of Aquascagok. Despite the fact that the previous day's trading had been massively lucrative and successful, the colonists were infuriated by this injustice, and that evening, a party of 11 men, led by the colony's admiral, Philip Amatus, 
returned to Aquascagoke. When Amadis arrived, he demanded the return of the silver cup. It's likely that, after the success and civility of the previous day's trade, the Native Americans were puzzled by his furious demand. It's possible that they believed that it was mistakenly traded, or accidentally given to them as a gift. Regardless, in order to maintain positive relations with the English, the people of Aquascagoke immediately promised to return the missing chalice. But there was one problem. None of them had any knowledge of this cup at all. No recollection of having been traded or gifted it, or otherwise acquiring it in any way. And this made returning it something of a challenge. Amadis and his soldiers waited along the shore as the day turned to dusk, growing increasingly impatient, until finally his patience ran out. Details are sparse as to exactly what happened that night in Aquascagoke, but shortly after, a chilling entry was recorded in the Journal of Tiger, documenting the incident. The 16 we returned thence, and one of our boats with the Admiral was sent to Aquascagoke to demand a silver cup which one of the savages had stolen from us. And not receiving it according to his promise, we burnt and spoiled their corn and town, and all the people being fled. Aquascagoke was completely and entirely destroyed, wiped off the map. And today, we do not even know the exact location where it once stood. Despite the hardships and the now poor relations with the natives, in late August of 1585, Sir Richard Grenville departed with his fleet to return to England, leaving behind 107 colonists and putting a man named Ralph Lane in charge as governor of the colony. Grenville promised to return with supplies in April of next year, but while Grenville was away, the hardships continued. Maintaining a sufficient food supply was a constant struggle, and tension remained between the colonists and the Native Americans, eventually resulting in a Native American attack on the colony, one that the settlers were able to repel by way of a counterattack that resulted in the death of a Secretan chief. Time ticked by, and April came and went with no sign of Captain Grenville's return. In June, the colony was visited by Sir Francis Drake, who was returning to England following a raid in the Caribbean. Drake offered the colonists food and other provisions, and, in light of their captain's delay in returning, even offered to take the colonists back to England. An offer that, given the struggle to maintain adequate food supplies and the increasingly hostile relationship with the native tribes, the colonists took him up on. But as it turns out, the colonists' abandonment of the island of Roanoke is only the beginning of the island's strange story. Soon, the English would return, and when they do, it sets into motion a series of events that ultimately leads to one of North America's oldest and most fascinating mysteries. About two weeks after the colonists' abandonment of Roanoke, Sir Richard Grenville finally returned, only to find the colony completely deserted. 
Grenville conducted a thorough search of the island, even interviewing several natives, but was unable to uncover any information as to the whereabouts of the colonists. Ultimately, Grenville and his fleet returned to England, leaving behind a small detachment of 15 men to maintain the colony and preserve the English presence on Roanoke Island. Back in London, despite the failure of the Roanoke colony, Raleigh had not given up on his mission of colonizing the West, and on January 7th of 1587, he approved a charter for a new settlement, and on May 5th, a fleet of three ships were dispatched from Plymouth Harbor. This time around, the captain of the fleet was John White, an artist and map maker from London, and White had also been selected to be the governor of the colony upon their arrival. The pilot of the flagship, however, was a man by the name of Simon Fernandez, and it would seem that the true control of the fleet rested with him. Accompanying the two were 115 soon-to-be colonists, and Unlike the previous expedition, Roanoke was not to be the location of the settlement this time around. Instead, the fleet's intended destination was to be the Delmarva Peninsula, some ways north of Roanoke near the Chesapeake Bay. It was believed that the waters there would be more easily navigable, and the English relations with the natives there were not quite so badly soiled. But before the fleet were to head towards the Chesapeake Bay, they did have one other task to take care of first, recovering the detachment that had been left at Roanoke. Pilot Simon Fernandez, however, appeared to have other plans, and the mission to extract the men on Roanoke did not go exactly how Governor John White anticipated. On July 22, 1587, John White and the rest of the fleet arrived at Roanoke, in preparation to disembark from the ship and rendezvous with the men on the island, White selected a team of 40 men to join him. Then, White and company boarded a smaller boat and were just starting to make their way towards land when they suddenly heard the voice of one of Fernandez's men calling to them from the main ship. And it was here that the mission was abruptly and irrevocably turned on its head. The man informed them that there had been a change of plans. He claimed that the journey had taken too long, and that the summer was now spent, that the stormy water to the north would be too dangerous to traverse. He told the men that Fernandez now insisted that the colonists would instead need to reignite the settlement on Roanoke. They would not be going to Chesapeake Bay. Despite White's best efforts to rally his men, Insisting that Roanoke was dangerous and unfit for settlement, he was unable to convince them. And immediately, Fernandez began the process of unloading each and every settler, 115 of them in total, from the flagship and onto Roanoke Island. By late afternoon, White and all of his colonists had been removed from their ship and began their journey towards the location of the old fort, where the 15 soldiers were holed up. But now, their mission had changed. No longer was this a simple check-in to assess the situation of the soldiers and determine next steps for Roanoke. Now, with the colonists having minimal supplies and no shelter, it was a survival mission. All White could do was hope that the men had enough supplies to support he and his colonists, who were effectively marooned on the island. In the dying light of day, 
the colonists made their way across Roanoke Island. What had years ago seemed like a land filled with opportunity and optimism for the future, now weighed heavy upon White and his men. Before long, they found their way to the remains of the previous Roanoke settlement, as well as the fort where the 15 soldiers had been stationed. However, there was no sign of life. The fort had been dismantled and the town was in disrepair, unkept and overgrown with weeds. There was no sign of the soldiers White had been so desperately hoping to find, save for one startling, grisly discovery. In a clearing, White discovered a single human skeleton, long deceased and bleached by the sun. Roanoke was a barren place with potential for disaster lurking in every shadow. This was a place of crushing misfortune, and White and his men were alone. Following their arrival on Roanoke, the colonists tasked themselves with making the previous settlement hospitable again. The fort needed to be repaired, the vines growing on the old houses and the brush taking over the town needed to be cleared, and, just as the colonists before them, food was a struggle as well. As a result, the colonists began looking to the land in order to augment their dwindling food supply. One such source of food was crab. In the very early days of the colony, George Howe and a group of fellow colonists were spending an afternoon hunting crabs in the marshes that rule much of the island. The men were wading through mud and reeds, armed only with small forked sticks. George was focused entirely on the task at hand, his eyes methodically scanning the water around him. He was so focused, in fact, that he did not notice that he had begun to wander off from his fellow hunters. Lost in his search, he pressed on through the sprawling marsh, eventually finding himself a full two miles away from the rest of his party, and, unbeknownst to him, he instead had stumbled into the ranks of another party of hunters. Now, George had not taken part in the previous colony, and had little knowledge of the dangers faced by its colonists, nor the butchered relationship with the Native Americans of the area. It would seem, however, that the same could not be said for the natives themselves. George continued to haphazardly wind through the marsh, totally unaware that he was being watched through the reeds. Mere feet away from him, a Native American hunting party crouched in silence, their bows drawn and arrows aimed directly at him. They fired. When it was all said and done, George Lai partially submerged in the marsh, with 16 arrows piercing his body and his skull bashed in by the hunter's clubs. While on the island the colonists struggled to survive, Simon Fernandez remained anchored just offshore for over a month. Despite his claim that the summer was ending and that it would soon be too dangerous to travel, he did not seem to be in any hurry to get moving. In fact, he took a full 36 days to prepare his ship to return to England with the news that the soldiers on Roanoke had died. By the time that he was prepared to leave, it had become abundantly clear that, with their current resources, survival would be a struggle for the colonists. 
And while, to this point, Fernandez hadn't exactly been accommodating to their needs, he did see the struggles that they faced, and he agreed to take Governor White back to England with him, so that he could explain the situation and organize for aid to be sent back to Roanoke. So, in the early morning hours of August 27th, 1587, John White, Simon Fernandez, and his crew set sail for England, leaving behind 117 colonists. Among them was John White's daughter, Eleanor Dare, and her newborn baby daughter, Virginia, the first English child born in the colony, or even in the new land of Virginia. While White was heartbroken to leave his daughter and granddaughter behind, he hoped for a hasty journey to England and a quick return to Roanoke with aid. But, unfortunately, that was not to be the case. The journey was difficult, and the crew was plagued by poor sailing conditions, dwindling supplies, and sickness. It took more than two months to arrive back in England, and when they did, White's struggles continued. The English were in the midst of the Anglo-Saxon War, and their maritime resources were stretched thin, fending off Spanish forces. Too thin to lend even a single ship to White for the sake of resupplying the colonists on Roanoke. In fact, it would not be until years later, in 1590, that White would finally manage to gather the resources necessary to return to his daughter and granddaughter. And when he did, he would be devastated by what he would find. Finally, in the summer of 1590, Sir Walter Raleigh managed to arrange for John White to join a fleet of six ships that were tasked with raiding Spanish outposts throughout the Caribbean, and in August, two of the ships, the Hopewell and Moonlight, broke away from the rest of the fleet to make their way to the Pamlico Sound and Roanoke Island. On the evening of August 15, 1590, three years after leaving, John White finally laid eyes on Roanoke Island once again. And to his amazement, as the two ships were anchored off the nearby Hatteras Island, the sailors noticed plumes of smoke rising up above the island far in the distance, kindling a glimmer of hope that, perhaps, despite the difficult circumstances White left them in, the colonists had managed to persevere. Early the next morning, White prepared to make land on Roanoke to investigate the location of the previous night's smoke plumes. As he left on a shore boat, the crew of Hopewell fired several artillery shots in hopes of alerting the colonists of their presence, and perhaps inciting them to start another fire. And it seemed to work, kind of. As White was about halfway to the shore of Roanoke Island, he noticed massive plumes of smoke beginning to rise from the nearby Hatteras Island. Thinking that perhaps this was a colonist trying to get their attention, White immediately diverted his path, now heading in the opposite direction towards the smoke billowing up from Hatteras. Aided by excitement and adrenaline, White and his men pushed across the Pamlico Sound to Hatteras Island, but on their arrival, they were met with nothing but disappointment yet again. They did find the source of the fire, but by the time they arrived, 
It was nothing but a lonely, smoldering pile of ash. They found no other signs of anyone having been there. And, to make matters worse, the day was coming to a close, and the men's supply of water was dwindling, forcing them to retire to the Hopewell for the evening. A day wasted. The next day was even worse. Delays caused by dwindling supplies cost the company their morning, and in the afternoon, when the men finally boarded two Pinances and set sail for Roanoke, they faced poor weather and waves so monstrous that, at one point, eleven men were swept off their boat and into the sea. Seven of them drowned in the roaring ocean. However, despite their hardships, the men did eventually make their way to Roanoke. But it was so dark that they opted to sleep on their boats and wait until morning to make land. Yet another day wasted. Finally, on the morning of August 18th, 1590, the moment arrived. As the morning sun began to peek over the horizon, John White and the remaining men awoke and eagerly stumbled ashore to truly begin their search for the colonists. Over the course of the day, White and his men scoured Roanoke Island, first locating the source of the smoke seen from the distance two evenings prior. But, like on Hatteras Island the previous day, all they found was the remnants of what was once a blazing campfire, with no other signs of life around. Next, the men skirted along the coast, towards where the Roanoke settlement used to be. And it was here, along the beach where White had left the colony three years ago, that he found the first sign of the colonists. Carved on a tree at the top of a sandy bank were the letters C-R-O. Now, to White, this was good and bad news at the same time. Prior to his departure, the colonists had been discussing the possibility of moving the settlement further inland, in hopes of a more hospitable environment and friendlier natives. In the event that this happened, White had instructed them to leave a message, carved into the trees around the settlement, notifying him of the location that they had moved to. And, in the event that they were met with distress or were in any kind of danger, he had instructed them to carve a cross over the message. So, here was the message, C-R-O, and with no cross. This was good because it indicated that the colonists had relocated, but were indeed safe. But the problem was, C-R-O was meaningless to him. Without a more complete message, White was unable to make sense of these letters, and there was no way for him to locate the new settlement. So, the men carried on, continuing to head towards the site of the Roanoke colony. But when they arrived, White's heart sank. When the men finally cleared the sand and brush and made their way into the clearing where the Roanoke colony had stood, White was astonished to see that there was nearly nothing there. No homes, no crops or animals, and most importantly, no people. The colony had been completely wiped from the landscape. It was as if it had never been there. Only one structure remained, a new structure that White had never seen. A sort of fence stood in the middle of what used to be the colony, Tall and constructed out of tightly packed wooden stakes, it appeared almost fort-like, a palisade, as if it had been constructed as a form of defense in the center of town. White stared in disbelief at the vacant landscape, speechless and devastated by the sight before him. All of the colonists 
including his daughter and granddaughter, seemed to have vanished without a trace. But then, as he surveyed the strange palisade constructed in the middle of the clearing, he saw more writing. Croatoan, clearly written in large capital letters just to the right of the fort's entrance. Now, this did mean something. Croatoan was a nearby island, just south of Hatteras Island. At last, White had hope that perhaps his daughter and granddaughter and their fellow colonists were still alive, that they had simply relocated to Croatoan Island. The search party entered the palisade, where they found more evidence of the colonists' presence, remnants of dismantled homes, chests that had been left behind and since looted, and an assortment of iron tools, all things that were presumably too heavy to be carried following the abandonment of Roanoke. Eventually, as the sun began to set, the men made their way back to the Hopewell, with plans to make their way to Croatoan Island at morning's first light. However, they were again faced with an unforeseen obstacle when, in the morning, the ship's anchor cable snapped, making any attempt to stop at the island far too dangerous, and forcing the men to abandon their search. John White never got the opportunity to investigate Croatoan Island, and the lost settlers of Roanoke were never found. However, no solid evidence of them having moved to Croatoan Island has ever been found, and even today, hundreds of years later, their fate remains a mystery. While no one knows exactly what happened to the lost colonists of Roanoke, there are certainly no shortage of theories. Perhaps the most popular one is that the settlers simply integrated with the local Native American tribes. In fact, the Croatoan tribe residing on nearby Croatoan Island were among the tribes that the English had been able to maintain a more positive relationship with. So it seems entirely possible that the colonists may have approached them for help, and over time blended in with the tribe. This theory would certainly make sense given the only real clue that we have, the carving of the word Croatoan on the palisade. In fact, in the years that followed, there were even scattered reports of blonde-haired, blue-eyed Native Americans who claimed to be descended from white settlers, as well as unsubstantiated reports of Native American towns with heavy European influences. However, it is just as likely that things didn't end so well, that the Roanoke colonists ran into a hostile tribe and came to a much darker fate, perhaps being captured and enslaved, or even slaughtered. In 1607, John Smith, governor of the new Jamestown colony, encountered a Powhatan chief who claimed to have killed the colonists after they allied with a rival tribe. Alternatively, the Spanish could have murdered the settlers, as you may recall, the reason for John White's delayed return was the war between Spain and England, and much of the tension between the two nations stemmed from colonization of the Americas. Spain did have a strong presence in Florida, and it was entirely possible that the Spanish troops may have made their way north to destroy the colony and slaughter its residents. Other theories include starvation, 
and possibly even cannibalism due to lack of food that resulted in a slower decline in the eventual demise of the colonists. Or perhaps they succumbed to disease, although this begs the question, what happened to their bodies? Now, there is one final piece of the puzzle to mention. Beginning in 1937, a series of stones were discovered, inscribed with messages that were supposedly written by the colonists of Roanoke. The first stone was discovered near a river in mainland North Carolina by a man named Lewis E. Hammond. On it was a message written by John White's daughter, Eleanor Dare. The message claimed that over half the colonists had succumbed to disease, and of those who remained, the Native Americans had killed all but seven, including young Virginia Dare. Similar stones continued to be found up until 1940, 48 of them in total, all making various claims as to where the colonists had gone and what had happened to them since. Unfortunately, all of the Dare stones, except for the original, have since been declared a hoax, forged by a man named Bill Eberhardt, a stonecutter from Georgia. But that being said, many historians believe that the first stone may be authentic, and possibly shines some light on the mystery of what happened to the lost colonists of Roanoke. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap for this week's episode. I'm glad I had a full month to put this one together because it was a little unruly and kind of got away from me at some points. So I hope it all came together okay and that everyone enjoyed. And that segues nicely into, if you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you didn't enjoy it, just leaving a mental review would be fine probably. I also want to extend a huge thank you to Maddie W. for becoming the show's newest supporter over on Patreon. Thanks, Maddie. I really do appreciate it. And also, Simply Strange is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so be sure to follow the show over there to stay up to date with what's going on. Although, I am definitely on a bit of a social media lull right now, so don't expect anything too terribly exciting from any of those, or anything at all. Anyway, all of those links are in the episode description, and that is it. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I will be back next month with another spooky and or strange story for you. Have a lovely day.